The Pinball Network is online. Launching Pinball Innovators and Makers Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Pinball Podcast focused on the innovators and makers who are crafting homebrew, custom, and retheme pinball machines, the technology that makes these personal projects possible, and the companies helping with these journeys. Custom pinballs are a deeply personal and technically challenging undertaking, requiring time, money, knowledge, and most importantly, the desire to make it happen. I'm Dan Rosenstein, your host. Join me and let's go under the play field and see what's needed to make a custom pinball possible. Hello, pinball innovators and makers. Welcome to episode 18. Today's guest has been instrumental in kicking off the growth we have seen in the custom and homebrew hobby, which has become a true catalyst for many of the pinball companies that have emerged over the last decade and leading to the renaissance moment we have now. A pinball maker and innovator to the core, please welcome the creator of the P-Rock controller and the president and founder of Multimorphic, Jerry Stellenberg. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Dan. Super happy to be here. So, Jerry, let's start off with with your, you know, how did you get into uh, uh, into pinball? What is your 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 intro into it? Your oh, origin gosh. story, if you will. Uh, let's see. I hadn't really touched a pinball game until college. Uh, college at Virginia Tech, 1996, 97, 95, somewhere around there. I was big into to pool and playing in the pool hall. My friends were into pinball, and they they sucked me in. They 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 got me hooked. Do you remember what that first machine was? It was either theater of magic or attack from mars i forget which one that, I, I think it was theater of magic somebody left a credit on there said jerry go play it and i played it and it took about 30 seconds and i wanted to play it again what what was it about that first experience other than being with your friends we'll talk about community a, a, a bunch throughout this episode like what was it about playing it that, that drew you in while while you were in college I think I didn't recognize or realize before I played it that it was skill-based, that you could actually control the ball. And watching my friends play, they were good at aiming and hitting shots and controlling the ball, and I just floundered around and lost the ball instantly. So I was like, wait, you're good at this, and I'm not. So clearly there's something I need to learn. And it just made me – just like playing pool. You play pool against people that are better than you, and you're like, man – they can do things that I can't do. I want to learn how to do that. So um, I guess self-improvement. So this was, was this truly the very first time you had been exposed to a pinball machine or you, you had never seen one growing up or never, never played on one or don't remember playing on one? I can't remember playing one. I'm sure I saw them somewhere, but no, I, I don't remember playing. We used to go to the arcade and play video games, but I don't remember ever playing pinball before that. Jerry, you, you mentioned you went to Virginia Tech. Are you are you from the East Coast originally, just regionally? Like uh, you don't have to give away where you're where you're from if you don't want to. Yeah, no, no, no worries. I grew up in Delaware, uh, okay. school in Virginia Tech, and then after that, made my way down to Texas. And um, pinball was legal at that at that time, so it's not like it you weren't exposed to it because it was illegal to play. So that that, that, no. that that's interesting. That that college was your was your first foray. So how did you go from you know in the pool halls in between playing games, playing with your friends on 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 theater of magic and, and attack from Mars to getting into the homebrew and custom scene? This is like b- b- before you started anything with P-Rock, Like how did you how did you foray your, your or make your way to 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 the custom and, and homebrew scene? So basically, when I wasn't eating, playing pool or pinball or um, doing anything else related to living my life, I was studying to be a computer engineer, uh, which is kind of a combination between electrical engineering and computer software, which are the the main the main uh, the main facets of developing 
computer hardware, like, like a P Rock board. But um, I, I'm a I'm someone who was fascinated by how things work, by creating new things, by by taking ideas and and twisting them around and trying to do cool new things with them. My uh, my senior project in our computer engineering class was to develop a game. Um, we were allowed to do anything, but uh, my partner and I chose to develop a game similar to that table labyrinth game where you the X and Y table and you'd roll a sure. ball around and try through gates. So we developed basically that. We took we took opto pairs and mounted them various places around a, a table, moved it around, and, and we wrote the code for that. I think it was an assembler. It was a, a little microcontroller class, and, and and that basically is pinball. And it kind of I kind of I guess I did that because of the the pinball experiences and wanting to recreate that that fun environment but the ball rolling around through gates is is basically the beginnings of every <laughs> other project i've done for the rest of my life so um, let's talk about that that labyrinth just just for a sec did you use an existing labyrinth or did you build up like the whole thing from scratch was it made out of wood out of metal how how close to the actual game of labyrinth was it and how far was it what was what was mechanically controlled and electrically controlled we were we we developed it from scratch. Um, my project partner, just another guy from the class, he was interested in woodworking and building stuff, and um, he kind of took on the the fabrication side mm -hmm. of things. And I handled most of the electronics and almost all of the programming. Um, I don't know how he got me to do all that because the <laughs> class was about electronics and programming, but clearly I was a sucker. Um, but no, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was basically from scratch completely. We we cut holes. We we added. The 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 I think it was more manually controlled than Labyrinth was. We would we would just use levers to, to move it around. But um it would it would guide you through a sequence of gates. Instead of trying to avoid holes and get to the end, um this was just a bunch of opto gates that you okay. were told via LEDs which one was next, which one you had to go to. Oh, that's super cool. So you're still mechanic if, if I'm understanding it correctly, you're still mechanically controlling the the level and position of the board so the ball can move. It's moving through gates and you're basically like a slalom course saying you've got yeah, to go through exactly. these gates. That, so instead of labyrinth, maybe it's it's slalom. Oh, that's super yeah. cool. So then let's let's rewind a little bit. You know, you went to school for computer engineering. Um, you found this love, you know, you sparked this love for for pinball in college. If you don't mind, let's talk about the earlier years. Like, what was Jerry like as a as as a kid? Like, did you have the knack? Like, did you, you know, at the age of six, did your parents know you're gonna be going off to engineering school? Like, tell 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 the listeners about that. I don't think it was that early. No, I knew I, I my dad brought computers home. When I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, I remember starting on a, an x86 something or other that could barely do anything. Um, I think we, we, like everyone, used them for word processing, and that was about it. I got into the bulletin board stuff, connecting the bulletin boards through the modem in early high school, I think, 13, 14. Um, started downloading programs and learning how to do very basic things. I took some programming classes in high school because computers were really neat and interesting, and I had dug into them a little bit. But um, yeah, it was it, high school. I started programming a little bit, and I just knew that I wanted to build stuff. I wanted to create stuff. I wanted to design things. Um, I, I can't tell you what connected me to that, but probably dad bringing home those computers was the start of it. So on, on those early computers, so my, uh, you and I, if, if I did my math correctly, are, are roughly the exact same age um, based on when we both went to college. Um, 
and based on just some of the things that you just said was was very similar. Um, my dad brought, also brought home x86 computers when I was very, very young. And I remember playing Friendlyware, which was kind of like the first, like, here's everything a computer can do type type piece of software. Other than word word, word processing, do you remember any other software on those early early computers that, that might yeah. have been interesting to you? The only ones I remember were uh, Sierra's King's Quest. And um, was it was it Zork? Zork, yeah. Yeah. Um, look left. Look left. Walk right. Was, was that Zork? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. No. Very. I, I don't remember if look left, look look right was Zork, but Zork was definitely in that in that time frame. <laughs> that that that's awesome. So then, fast forward. Let's take you. You know, you you you're, you've studied computer uh, uh, engineering at Virginia Tech. You've been playing pinball with your buddies at the pool hall. So, how did the bridge from playing pinball to being interested in custom and homebrew happen? So it actually happened very quickly, and. Um... Yeah, it happened before I left college. So I went to a job fair at school and talked to a bunch of companies, one of which was National Instruments, which is a company in in Austin, Texas, known for test and measurement stuff. Um, they offered me a job. I accepted it. Um, and I started wondering, you know, this company makes a lot of digital I.O. boards and industrial control type stuff. It might be cool if I took a board from them, a digital I.O. board, connected it to a pinball play field, and wrote new software for a game. I can't tell you why I wanted to do that. I, I don't remember. Um, but that was my first thought. And so I spent the second half of my senior year in college looking for a machine to basically rip apart, um, take out the boards and stuff. And it turned out that there was a local collector who had a trizone machine oh, wow. that that didn't have boards. He, he, I don't know what happened to his original boards. Maybe he got the machine without them or whatever. But it didn't have boards, so it was basically just a playfield in a cabinet, and um, it was perfect because he he gave it to me for super cheap. I think it was twenty five or fifty dollars. He gave me the oh, playfield. I'm just a bunch of features on a piece of wood that. Um, I had my dad who picked me up from college. We had to shove this pinball cabinet into the back of the car. He's like, well, what are we doing with this thing? I mean, it, take, it takes up more room than all my stuff at the time. <laughs> but um, took that machine with me to Austin when I moved down here and literally spent the first few months of my free time wiring up MOSFETs and creating this digital digital-based control system for a, a pinball playfield. I got it completely working. Um, used the LabVIEW software, which, if you're unfamiliar, is a graphical programming environment that engineers, it, it was targeted at engineers. You didn't have to learn um, line-based, text-based programming. It was all graphical. You drag and drop even for loops. You drag a, a circle in, and you'd put code inside of it, or code being icons and things that did stuff inside of it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's basically control systems programming software for engineers who are great engineers, but not necessarily great software developers. Which is weird to me, because in retrospect, you still had to think the exact same way through a design. You still need variables and for loops and um, statements. But anyway, you do it all graphically, which was a different experience. But I, I had all the resources I needed because I worked at the company making the boards and making the programming environment and got a little bit of help. But in a few months, we had a fully working tri-zone pinball machine in my apartment. 
Now, you said we, I'm going to key in on that. And you also mentioned your dad a little bit earlier. Did your dad help you with this? Or did you have other people, other folks, friends that were working? Or is the we kind of the, the royal we that you were talking about? The, 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 we, the, the we in that case was the help I was getting from people at at NI, oh. at National Instruments, who were, who were helping answer the, the stupid questions I had because I was this brand new out-of-school guy who didn't know anything. Um, how do I how do I connect this board to a MOSFET gate? Um, and why do my MOSFETs keep blowing up? I, I, basically, I have no idea what I'm doing. Please help me. In other words, do it for me, but I'm going to actually be the monkey who uses his arms and hands and, and ties it together. And then, no, no, no. I, I, I got some advice. In fact, I remember posting online sometimes saying, why do my MOSFETs keep dying? And they're like, it's because you have a separate ground between your digital ground and your analog ground. And if they're not connected together, bad things happen. You you can you can go back and teach that to Gottlieb if you want. Like that would be that would be good information for them. What's, um, what's funny is that specific fact has been like the driving force of a lot of conversations I've had in the last 30 years. Um, so other uh, 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 other than um, keeping your grounds uh, connected, um, what were what were some of the other early lessons learned? Uh, basically, it's a convoluted, weird way to do things to take a, a pinball machine and rip apart all of its guts and rewire it and connect it to a whole new control system and tie that control system to a programming language that no one else was using to do pinball machines and um, do all this before the internet was super popular. So there were avenues for help, but not real easy ways to get help. Um, it was kind of just an exercise to, I mean, I didn't have any long-term goals from this exercise. It was just something I thought would fun. I, I did it so that I would have a pinball machine in my house that had code that I developed and um, could share it with my friends. And probably one or two friends played it. And then it wound, wound up in the dumpster when I moved to the next apartment. Oh, really? So you don't, yeah. you don't, you don't have it anymore. No. Um, so in terms of, in terms of gameplay code, did you have, um, you know, there's, there's the portion that actually does the, that does the basics of the electrical play. So switches work and, and actuators work, you know, the basics of the control system. Um, and then on top of that, there's games, you know, there's game rules and rule set. Did you make your way into game rules and rule set and scoring, or you, were you basically super happy at the point that you got the, the foundations of the control system working? Yeah, I wasn't really knowledgeable on pinball rule sets and why things were fun or what was fun and what wasn't fun. I, I was mostly a attacking this as an engineer or a, a project to learn how to control this analog play field with digital control circuitry. I, I can't tell you when I really started to understand pinball rules, but it wasn't yet. Um, but what was next was I started to get really into playfield design and shot layouts, like like probably most pinball people. I start I started to go to when I'd go out and eat, I'd take a notebook with me and start drawing layouts and um, different toy ideas and mechanisms. There's something about just creating a a fun layout or an interesting layout with fun toys was was appealing to me, and that's kind of what I did in my free time. You know, Jerry, I, on, on this podcast, I've, you know, this is going to be, this is a episode 18 and I've interviewed, you know, so many people through it and everybody approaches it from a completely different position. And okay. you now have added the the 18th position, which is starting it as an engineer, as an engineering project to see if, to see if you can do it. It's, it's, it's totally, totally interesting. Um, You, you mentioned uh, that you had reached out on the early days of the internet um, would that be to rec.games.pinball or was it to a different different forum at the time? Who are you reaching out to at that point? 
at that point it was simply electronic forums because okay. I was trying to figure out why my 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 control circuits weren't working or um, what I needed to learn. Um, I do remember talking on RGP in college. Actually, I think I think you'd see a couple of posts from me being called an idiot by some of the by, by some of the. I remember we had a so my, my friend had a had a beat the clock. He got a beat the clock during our senior year, put it in his apartment, and one of the flippers stopped working. So I, I had tried to do something to fix it that makes no sense. And I remember posting on RGP, hey, the flipper doesn't work on this machine. I've tried this. And the response when I forget the guy who responded, if someone said his name, it would it it would it would ring the bell because he's someone who's probably still posting today. But he basically said, stop trying to fix pinball machines. You have no idea what you're doing. Don't ever touch one again. <laughs> Well, and, uh, many people are full of bad advice, Jerry. So, um, what's, I, I, I didn't listen. Which, which is which is great. Um, and the other great thing is that the archives still have all the yeah. communication, so it should be pretty easy to find who yeah. who was it that 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 said it. Um, so, when like, do you remember when you first started to meet other folks who were also interested in? It probably wasn't even called homebrew and custom at that point, but in into these types of endeavors that you were you were looking at now now that you were in Austin, I did not meet other homebrew pinball folks until uh, we started shipping P Rock and and those kind of things. What happened was shortly after I moved to a new apartment, got rid of that trizone because I didn't want to move it because it was basically just a. A, a, a functional but not fun to play um, box of <laughs> box of pinball stuff. Um, I bought the first two games that I'd ever played. I bought a Theater of Magic and Attack from Mars, put them in my apartment, and my friends started to come over. We'd, we'd play them at lunch every day or whatever. Um, went to a new job in, uh, in 2001, I think. Went over to Tipping Point Technologies and met a guy who spent every weekend at his friend's house playing pinball. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, they had a Tales of the Arabian Nights and I think a, an old Star Wars game. And um, I went over there a couple times, played with them. And um, at one point, the, the the ship bracket on my Attack from Mars broke. And this friend of mine, this guy I'd met at work, he, he was good with his hands. His name was Les, Les Pitt. Um anyone familiar with my my long-term story knows he's been a, long, a, a big part of it but um he took it home and welded it and put it back in the machine my tech from ours now works again and over the course of the next so many years we'd talk talk a lot play a lot of pinball and uh, eventually kind of um because of all of this i started to grow my collection and then get antsy about wanting to do my own thing so um well uh as you grew out your collection um was there a specific like you had talked about going to, to bars and restaurants or restaurants i should say even say bars um to uh to, to write down what you liked in shot layout and what you liked in, in in various different games like what did you gravitate to is there a specific type of game a specific type of shot layout a specific designer perhaps and when you built out your collection what what were you looking for I don't know that I was looking for anything in particular. I was on the ever-growing forums reading about other people's opinions. This game's great. That game's great. I didn't have a lot of opportunity to play a lot of the recommendations 
just couldn't find the games. So I bought a lot sight unseen, but I wound up with 12 machines and I can name a few, some that I remember. Um, Attack from Mars Theater Magic were the first. I bought a Medieval Madness. I bought a Shadow, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, you're, Judge you're, Dredd. You're, you're not dealing with a bad collection at this point. Like the, well, that, it that, ends that's up they're the, all AAA titles. Well, that's the thing. I was a I was a a single hardware engineer making reasonable money at the time. I didn't really have any expenses, so I started to buy pinball machines. Um, and I bought fairly good ones. I tried to buy home use only ones because I didn't want to have to restore them. I didn't. I wasn't into the woodworking side of things. I didn't want to do any of that. Um, I eventually bought a Spider-Man Black, I think the last one or two, or supposedly the last one or two. Who knows what the dealer was actually telling me. Um, I bought and sold a junkyard pretty quickly. Uh, Whitewater, I still have. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because I, I came into to pinball through the technical track as well. But for me, it was about finding ones and going through the process of repairing them. Because at this point in my career, I was, although I was an engineer, I wasn't hands-on, I was managing teams. And so to kind of get that hands-on knack, it was, um, it was a, it an outlet for me on weekends while, while, you know, we were having our, our, our kids and building out our, our family or making our family. And so the fact that you came in and you started with home use only machines, even though you came yeah. in from an engineering track is, yeah. is, is quite interesting. So, um, in, in just about, I think if I have my facts right, and if I don't, I'm sorry, in about 2008, you started pinballcontrollers.com and it looks like, um, I was looking at LinkedIn and it looks like you're, it was, uh, as a side business, you were still at least on, on LinkedIn, um, working, working full-time at, at that um how did that come to be why don't you tell the story of from you know you start building out your collection you talking with your friends and then how how pinball controller starts yeah so it was 2006 2007 i'd been working for tipping point technologies for a while basically in a role that they claimed was really important in the sense that the the features I was working on for the board we were designing, this intrusion prevention system, which was new at the time, um, firewalls versus IPSs. IPSs were just kind of being introduced. And I was developing the chip that would uh, scan the data as it went through the network and try to look for signatures of, of the bad things that they needed to filter out. Um, so there was a lot of heat on me to to work hard, design these features, get them working. And we were a small group, um, but I had the core function. The CEO was in my office one day saying, what's it going to take to get this finished? And they just kind of told me how important any any individual role can be in the company. And I tended, I was I was in one of the more important ones at that point. And, and I worked my butt off summers, nights and weekends, um, 16 hours a day. I'd go home and work or I'd go home, thinking about the problem I was trying to solve and solving it while showering or, or whatever, coming up with ideas. And I don't know how many times I would wake up in the morning having dreamt a solution to a problem that, that I couldn't solve or was having trouble solving. Anyway, the point was that I kind of burned out on helping other people be successful. Because at that time, if, at least from my perspective, other people didn't care how much work you were doing. They didn't care how much they were asking so long as you were helping them be successful. And I don't think um, that most of the companies I, I was working throughout the years, I don't think that the individuals were taken care of nearly as well as they should have been given the magnitude of success for the people at the top. It's kind of a, 
a, a philosophy I kind of hold to this day. Every everyone who's helping should be taken care of. Um, so I started looking around at what I wanted to do. I came up with some ideas. I actually quit my job after coming up with an idea to do something non-pinball related. Uh, and while working on the business plan and researching that and working through the investment raise stuff, I, that's kind of when I built up the collection of pinball machines. And okay. I, I didn't pursue the company. There were some big challenges that I uh, that I didn't have the skills or the, the connections to solve. <laughs> but at the time, I've now got 12 pinball machines in my house, and I'm like, this is kind of stupid. I have 12 huge, expensive things in my home that every time I turn the switch on, they're the exact same thing. But now I have a, I think I had a mobile phone at the time. We certainly had Nintendos and things that you turn them on and they have a lot of content. And I think the dreams of smart refrigerators were even coming out then with apps <laughs> and things that you would run in your refrigerator. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Why isn't the pinball machine a device that we can run different software applications on and, and do different things? And so the entrepreneur thing kind of going on while I was building this pinball game or this pinball collection and, and kind of thinking that it didn't make sense, kind of merging those two things is what led to the, the P-Rock board, which I developed in 2008, as and, you said. And so um, why don't you talk about back in 2008, what were some of the goals of the P-Rock board that you, that you had put in place? What were some of the... <laughs> The things you want to accomplish. Yeah, so I actually, the, the it's not quite the whole story. The the whole story was, why am I buying individual machines? Why don't I buy or make? Because there isn't. Why don't I make? Get with my friend Les, who's good at using things, uh, using tools and building things. Why don't we make a machine that can be themed, that can do new new stuff, that can. I don't know, what if we put an LCD in the lower play field and track the ball, and then we can have a physical ball interacting with stuff, just like our finger does on these mobile phones. Um, why don't we try to do something that that uses technology, today's technology back then, in a, in a cool way and integrate that with pinball? Um, so we started down um, the path of, of P3 concepts way back when, and it was kind of a, a roadblock right at the beginning. Like, there's no way to control this today. There, there's nothing out there that I can just go buy. There is no pinball controller. Stern had their own. Williams had their own. Everyone had their own. There wasn't an off-the-cell thing with open software. There, there was nothing I could use. I think the only thing available at the time, if I remember correctly, was a schematic for, it was called Pin Mame Hardware? Yep. Okay, so a schematic and a list of parts you could use to build this control. I don't even remember yeah. what it was really used for. And and in 2008, just to, to, to refresh for the audience, um, Arduinos weren't commercially available in 2008. Raspberry Pis were not commercially available. It'll be another three to five years, depending on how you want to look at the timeline. Um, that that they would become commercially available. Um, there were, you know, even even computers start, you know, as small as the form factors were getting, they were just starting to hit the size that they could be put into a pinball machine. And even if you did that, the ability to control digital IO and analog IO was still was still was still a, a large jump. That started things started to show up at this point, especially for the like you said for in pin mame as well as the mame community. But it was still very 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 nascent. So even if you could control switches and and solenoids um being able to do something that had real-time control or or close to real-time control that a pinball machine just just didn't exist 
So, so I didn't initially jump into the controlling coils and lamps and stuff like that. Um, what I did was I said, okay, let me let me build a controller. This is what I do for a living. I design I design um, digital electronics to control stuff. So I can do this. You can do this. So so, so I started designing the circuitry around. Um, controlling what eventually became our IR grid, which mm-hmm. is the, the the set of emitters and transmitters we put over the LCD screen to track the ball. Um, and then I was thinking, well, how am I going to test this? How am I going to develop early software? In order to do that, I have to build a machine first or all, all the features of the machine. However, I have 12 machines in my house. So why don't I build in the additional circuitry, which really is just a bunch of comparators for the switches and um, an output bus to talk to like a Williams or a Stern uh, power driver board. Why don't I design this into my board so that I can use any of my 12 machines as a test bed, as a, as a physical tool set to allow me to develop the software and make the thing more mature. So, so that's what I did. And that sidetracked the P3 for a good three or four or five years, because as you know, the P-Rock is what that was. And it kind of grew a life of its own. So um, you you bring the, the you know, you design the P-Rock, you bring it to market, like you you put it on, on a web page, you start to, to sell it. How did, like... How did the community grow from there? Like kind of talk about what happened from when the, the website for pinballcontrollers.com went up and you started to get, you get, you know, not just people buying it, but people reaching out to you being like, hey, you know, like I, I want to do this thing. Yeah, I think it actually started before we put the website up. We, okay. um, that, that was, that was entirely me. I designed the board. I, I put the website up, but um, while I was designing the board, I reached out on, it still might've been RGP at the time. I think it was still RGP. Uh, and I was asking people about functionality for existing machines. How does this work? Does anyone have a, a WPC machine? Can you explain how it handles such and such? Um, so I could build in support for as many of the, the current, at the time, modern machines, um, support for them. And I honestly don't remember how many people responded or some of the emails I got that were, this is really cool. If you ever make this board it'd be cool if you could make a couple extras because i would love to have one and do this myself okay so at this point when you were reaching out you hadn't thought okay i didn't i didn't catch that you were just doing this as kind of like your your own thing you hadn't thought about actually building building a a commercial product absolutely correct yes this this Um, was not intended to be I, i i this was just a hobby thing for me to control my machine and so so sorry i i didn't i did that 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 didn't click um and so um Okay, but when people started to say like, "Hey, I, you know, if you build one of these, would you build a second? Like, you started to get customer signal at that point, which yeah. is a a pretty strong. So, how did it go from um you building it for yourself to actually going, okay, I am going to make this thing to 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 offer it to other people? Well, it was simply that I, eventually the people reaching out to me because I think at some point I said, "Yeah, I'm going to build a few extras." I, I'm sure the history is on RGP. If we actually wanted to go back and see how wrong I am in my memories, but um. <laughs> I, I think a bunch more people started reaching out and saying, yep, if if you do this, I want one too. Or um, that's really cool. I would love to control my Brida Pinbot or, or whatever it happened to be. I, I know right around – so we launched the website. I know I keep saying we, and at the time it was just me. 
Um, I launched the website in 2009. Uh, yeah, set up the LLC. And it was either before or very soon after that, I got an email from a guy named Adam Preble, who was a software programmer in Atlanta, who apparently was searching for exactly the type of thing that the P-Rock was. He was looking for a way to control a pinball machine. I think he wanted to customize, a, I don't know if it's an Adam's Family or, or another game, but he was looking for something, which is funny, Adam Preble and Adam's Family, that makes <laughs> sense. Um, he reached out, said he's a software programmer. He uh, really likes what I'm doing and would love to help with the software side of things. Um, so between he and me putting this together, the board and the early software, it just kind of organically grew into this thing. We started posting it online and, and getting more and more emails from people who wanted it. So when the when the board became available, talk uh, uh, t- tell me and the listener a little bit about the software that you and Adam put together. Um, what What was made available at that time? So I had first started with a very basic set of drivers, um, which are just features built. I think I was using C at the time just to make sure I could control the physical features on a pinball machine. I remember connecting it to both a Stern machine, which was Pirates, and a Williams machine, which was probably Judge Dredd, making sure that the very low-level drivers could control functions. So basically, I built a diagnostic tool set. The, the test menu that you have in your machines, you, you you can activate coils, you can read switches, you can control the DMD. I did all that in C. And Adam basically asked, can I look at your code? And he did. And he's like, uh, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't, this isn't going to fly. Um, so he's like, let me, let me help take that code, turn it into a real C driver that we can compile into a driver. And then we can link that against real applications. And he basically helped refactor all of the driver code um, he came in and he he sent me one week. He sent me, "Hey, I took your driver code, I made it, and also here's an example of what I just did on my my Judge Dread machine." So he had his own Judge Dread machine, and he's he's like, "Check this out," and he's like playing a basic game. I'm like, "Wait a second! All I did was give you some driver code," and he's like, "Yeah, I went and implemented uh, a control loop and allowed you to write some very basic rules, and here's it controlling a sequence of drop targets and things." And what he had created was the core, the main logic inside of what became PyProc game, the software framework PyProc game. That that's absolutely amazing. So Jerry, it must have been pretty satisfying to see your creation bring new life to both WPC and Stern machines, as well as see Adam build up the driver code and his Judge Red. Now, I realize you had gotten your own stuff flipping before, but see, you know, seeing seeing something that actually started to show some scale, started to show some adaptability to other people, it, it must have been must have been personally rewarding. Well, it 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 was personally rewarding to see Adam take it and develop that stuff. The the connection with the community and people obviously being successful didn't happen until a little later because that was all based on this work. Uh, but what happened was Adam showed me that demo and I was like, cool, how'd you do that? And he sent me the code. And it wasn't a week later that I had built I had I had written all of the supporting elements of the software framework to basically turn Judge Dredd into a fully working, um, customized code base. So we called it, I called it JD because 
not it's not Judge Dredd. It's it's something else. But I mean, I had to build in the setting support and the high score tables and the ball trough management and all the features you would need outside of just the main control system, the main the main runtime loop in in event handling. Um, so it wasn't a week later, but th- that a full a full running JD w- was there in Pipe Rock game was really a thing. And and JD is not the easiest of all games. It's got that um I forget what that that area is that holds the balls and turns the night zone. Dead, I forget, it's got a cool dead, name. I dead world. Dead, dead world. world. That's that, yeah. that's what it is. Um, did you get that activated as well as part of this or the, the one on my machine was actually the modified one that would hold onto the balls and it would it would rotate oh. them around and it was it was pretty cool. Um, yes, that was fully working. The crane would go pick up the balls and drop them. It was it was all. I mean, uh, truth be told, I wrote all of this code while at my day job, um, write, writing code in, in a VI window and then going home and testing it at night. But it, it took about a week of full, full-time work, um, and it was a fully running game. Um, so uh, fast forward a little that, – that, that's super awesome. Um, fast forward a little bit to – let's start talking about how that starts to change the community and how folks start – more than Adam start to come out of the woodwork and, and what happens next from a community perspective. So I, I don't really recall who was the first person to take it and do something cool with it, but this is the time where Dutch Pinball bought one. Uh, I don't know if it was Barry or Coon bought one to put in their Bride of Pinbot, and that was the beginning of Bride of Pinbot 2. Um, Scott Denisi bought one for his Earthshaker to customize Earthshaker. Uh, Eric Preepke bought one for Cactus Canyon, and that grew into Cactus Canyon Continued. There were a number of projects, uh, people like Michael Ocean and Josh Kugler, and um, I'm probably missing some names of some of the early folks. Um, David Nelson for the Buffy Project. These are all people who reached out. Uh, this would have been 2010, 11, 12 um I remember 2013 was the expo where we had a big booth full of all these projects because basically all of us kind of came together and we're building these cool things and we're all answering each other's questions and everyone's building on top of Pipe Rock Game and it just became this really exciting um, thing to show off new game code written for existing machines. And so um, how... In this time frame, let's let's rewind just a little bit before the 2013 show... um, how are you all communicating? Was was there a forum? Um, were you guys were you all getting together every so often? Was everybody co-located? Talk a little bit about that, about the logistics of community building, if you will. Uh, I'm trying to remember. We were definitely not local. Everyone lived in their own place, their own state, their own whatever. Um, at one point, when when I launched the website pinballcontrollers.com, I put a forum on there. Uh, pinballcontrollers.com forums. It was a simple machine forum implementation. And I'm guessing that's where we were all talking way back then. I knew that kind of grew into a bigger thing for a few years. But uh, forum posts on that forum, the forum is since dead. We kind of all moved to Slack uh, five or six or 10 years later. But um, I think it was all through online forums after the initial emails. When was the first time that you you met any of these folks in, in person? Do you remember? Uh, Roughly. 2012, 2013. Okay, so it was was really almost either before the show or in prep, before and in prep of of the show. Absolutely. I'd only ever talked to all these people online. Um, Yeah. 
It's um, remember the first. It's 2012. I took a Judge Dread to Expo. Was it 2012? It might have been 2011. I took. Uh, I don't remember. Terry, we we don't remember what happened a few days ago. Like, I, I mean, roughly, it's 2011, 2012. This is a decade ago. No, I I, I know, but it's so important <laughs> in my timeline because like 2012 was the introduction of the P3. So I would have brought Judge Dread to Expo in 2011 before that happened, and and I was sitting in Rob Anthony's booth with this custom implementation, and I remember three or four people bought PROX at the show because they thought it would be super cool to customize their own games. So it would have been 2012. In 2013, where we started meeting everyone uh, in person, seeing all their games. I mean, these two guys from the Netherlands literally flew over with their Bride of Pinbot to to participate in this custom pinball exhibit at Pinball Expo in probably 2013. That's that that's awesome. It's so cool to hear about the the early um the early days where where you folks came came together and had the first you know more than just one custom machine at at Expo together. Um, so how did how did this all become the start of Multimorphic in the P3? So remember that I developed the P-Rock in order to control this custom concept I had. Uh, right, right. 20, 2012, early 2012, actually would have been late 2011, less and I built the first version of the P3 in my garage. Um, so straight up garage, garage start to this whole P3 journey. Um, but, we put this but, machine. Jerry, if you're not going to do a startup in your garage, it's not worth doing the startup. And I don't even mean my basement or my my dining table. I mean my garage. <laughs> we we were building this machine in my garage. Um, so we put in this very small display in the center of the playfield. We built some some ramps and loops around it. Um, 2012 was the introduction of that concept homebrew machine we took it to texas pinball festival simply to show people a cool project we were working on and that's it it had very early software it did have implementations of what are now rocks and barnyard and some of the some of the little mini games we had and that was all it had <laughs> it was just you can choose when you hit the start button rocks barnyard or some other game and we took it to tpf 2012 it won best something um I won $100 at that show, took it home. I was like, sweet, let's do this. Um, at the same time, I had an aunt and uncle who were visiting and saw this thing. They thought it was super cool. And they're like, are you going to are you gonna make this a company? Like, no. Why would I do that? That would take literally to build a company to build pinball machines. I, I remember I was from the, um, the technology world, and I'd been through a couple startups that had grown to – I, I told them explicitly it would take $2 million to get us off the ground to start to build out a staff to start making. This was back in 2012, $2 million. Hmm. It'd be a lot more now. Um, but they said, we don't have $2 million, but this is super cool. And we think we think you should do this. So they wrote me a very small check for way less than any sane person <laughs> would take to, to go do a company. And I started Multimorphic. And regret it ever since because it was enough money to basically pay me and last for a year and not buy anything just just to pay our salaries for a year and um it's been it's now it's been more than 10 years of building something from essentially nothing and and not only did you did you incubate and build the control uh board but then you also built and incubated the 
the the machine itself and its 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 core ideas and and then you built and incubated the business like you truly went the maker to market journey which is and, and you know you've been doing it for for ten years it's it's absolutely amazing um what, what do, do you mind saying what your aunt and uncle's name are so we can we can thank them on the air <laughs> Diane and Gary well let's let's thank Diane and Gary for for their initial investment because it sounds like it would not have been a company without 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 them um look I I, I will say for the for the listeners I'm a p3 owner um just for full disclosure I've had mine for over a year I absolutely love it um you know my my virtual machine my virtual pinball machine happens to get the gets the most play from me during the week the second thing that gets play after that and I've got a pretty extensive collection is my p3 and I you know I I absolutely love it um you know, and it's it's interesting because I work in technology. You work, I mean, you still work in technology. It's a it's a different different form. Um, and we're talking about technology that's now you know five years, ten years old. Um, and the thing about it, and I, I want to talk about this here rather than as we go further as the as the company took off. Um, you know, in the world of technology, that can seem like multiple generations. But I will tell you, like as a technologist, I work on cutting edge, like bleeding edge stuff. I look at the P3 as this like revolution in in in, in, in innovation in pinball. Um, every you know every everything about it to me is is the forefront of where I want pinball to go. Where you know I see pinball going. Um, I, I believe my final resistance is in manufacturing right now. I might have actually just shipped out. Um, and I'm super excited to get that. Like it's. I, I I am a, and I'm a technologist. Like I, I truly work. Like I work on robotics. Like I work on bleeding edge stuff. And I I view even though the core technology used here might be a little you know might 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 have you know ten years under it. It's still truly it's magic in certain cases. When I show people the 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 ball movement tracking as an example, they're they're blown away by it. And so walk us through um, how you took the prototype and that initial seed. And built out the P3 that we know now, and then we'll talk about some of the some of the games and and when you took the the, the plunge into full time work with Multimorphic. Well, number one, thank you for your support and here for your enthusiasm for what we're doing because um, we are just happy to be making something that people are really enjoying and seeing people like you react so positively to the technology and the games is is kind of the validation we need to 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 do this it's 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 why we do it um keep, keep them coming like you like yeah, I've, I've i've joked that you 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 guys have built out a great business model and that you basically get 2500 bucks give or take from me every quarter every two quarters so it's <laughs> well, like thank you thank you well, we're we're obviously super happy to know that people out there are enjoying what we're doing um remind me of the question sorry yeah, no. Um. So, 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 uh, the the plunge into into multimorphic full time. You took the seed money. Um. How did you over the next? You know, talk about the next five to ten years as you brought the multimorphic out of out of uh, out of uh, incubation as as a product to market. Okay, so we took about five years to iterate on the idea. Uh, we started. Well, we got the first and only check from from diane and gary uh, in 2012 we incorporated in may and less and i finished building the first prototype we built a secondary prototype with a larger monitor the first prototype by the way was a display a 17 inch display with traditional flippers below it 
But we did float. We came up with a new slingshot concept. So there were floating slingshots above it. But the first prototype was 17 inches. The second prototype was 24-inch monitor. So a bigger monitor that we had to invent new flippers to float over top of it. Because uh, as we all know, monitors don't like holes drilled through them. <laughs> um, so Les was an avid mountain biker. He came up with this concept where he would use brake lines to control flippers and tug the flippers back. Uh, didn't didn't work. I mean, it did work. It flipped the flippers, but they didn't want to return. They didn't have a good spring action to pull them down. So he he then changed it to um, bicycle spokes. So hard rods that are connecting the flippers basically to the plungers, and um, those worked functionally. They were much better, but they would break very quickly. And we slowly iterated that design to be more structurally solid and and more reliable. And at the same time, we switched from a static upper playfield design to a modular upper playfield design because we're like, oh, I had some early parties. I had some parties, people coming over to the house, and we're we're playing this thing. And they're like, this is super cool. You can do so many things on the screen, but the top stuff is always the same. So. I think I'm going to get bored of this lower stuff if the top stuff is always the same. And, and that little seed of an idea kind of got us thinking about modular upper play fields. Um, so 2013, 2014, we had our third prototype. 2015, or I think it was before that, we brought TJ on board. TJ was a friend of a friend of Les's wife. I think they played on the same billiards league hmm. team or something she's like we I, I know a mechanical engineer he he's in the pinball he works at a, a pinball place and we talked to him tj came on board he started design this might have been 2013 i forget when he came on board but anyway we had a mechanical engineer drawing the mechanical stuff in solidworks for all these things and iterated over the course of five years 2015 2016 we had what we called a production prototype um, oh, by the way, in 2013, we thought we would be like everyone else who in the industry was coming out of the the woodwork, and we announced a pre-order. Um, we're going to have this really cool machine. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a multi-game thing. Um, let's get some pre-orders. And we sold right out of the shoot 10 or 15 machines that we didn't deliver for like four years because we were still iterating the design. Um, but we gave them all a good deal. We said... We had the whole concept. We said for, I think it was $10,000 at the time, if you pay up front, you're going to get two play fields and three mini games. You're basically going to get a lot of stuff. So those people, because they eventually got their machines, got, got great deals on the, on the early P3s. Um, Cause it costs way more to do that than, than we had charged them. Um, so, you know, the, the, for, for those of us in product development, the timescales you're talking about aren't actually that long, like one year, two years, five years, like, it can take that long to bring product to market. Why don't you tell for the listener who doesn't know product development as well, what what were some of the challenges you were having and um, what what was it that, like if, if somebody was to say that was a long period of time, talk about what were the things that needed to happen in order to to get the business off the ground and the, so, and the product um, off the ground? I think this is probably a good comparison. Uh, might not be. You, you can tell me your opinion. If you took two guys stuck them in a garage and said, design a car from scratch. How long would it take? You could design the basics of it, the frame or the very basics of steering and wheel movement and braking and stuff, make it a mechanically controlled car, probably in six months, a year, maybe. And then you'd iterate on it for another year or so and improve stuff, get, get better quality components and put it together. Um, but we're talking something as complex as an automobile 
but also with technology that had never been done before in pinball. Um, so I think we could probably build any custom homebrew game in mm, two years, maybe mm-hmm. just two guys in a garage, probably two years, fully start to start to finish, uh, fully printed, clear coated play fields and full rules and graphics and artwork and all that stuff. But we were doing stuff that had never been done before, still hasn't been done again. Right. Um, and, and we had to iterate on that repeatedly and, in product development, usually you either have a very well-defined set of requirements and you can design directly to those requirements, which usually change while you're doing it anyway. Um, but we didn't start with requirements. We kind of started with an idea and that idea evolved as we were going. So we got far enough and then we're like, okay, let's add let's add the modular play fields. Okay, let's add an infinity ball trough, um, a ball trough that can kick up balls from any position underneath the play field. Okay, let's add... Um, and you, you name the feature that the P3 has, and we just kept adding them, and, and, and it was a long process. You've you've got the built-in uh, scoops and and walls. You've got the ball tracking. You've got the 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 playfield uh, screen, which has to you know which which, which has its own um own, own set of challenges. And like you said um or, or earlier, you had to design new flipper mechs because, like you said, monitors typically don't like holes drilled in them. So, so, so speaking of which, a little anecdote, we were at the 2012 Pinball Expo with our first prototype. The who's who of pinball came over and played it. Roger Sharp, Greg Kamek, Dennis Norman, so many people came over and played it. And they're like, this is really cool, but I have one piece of advice for you. They all said the exact same thing. Use off-the-shelf components for everything. I mean, that 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 sounds great, but I can't do what I want to do with off-the-shelf components. There simply aren't off-the-shelf components to do what I want to do. Well, I mean, J- Jerry, you you have a choice. You can use off-the-shelf flippers and mechanisms, and then get a completely custom monitor, or you can use an off-the-shelf monitor and build your own custom custom flippers. I I mean, you got to do one or the other. So. so so we went the route of redesigning a thing that had been reliable and working for 40, 50 years, <laughs> and and we um. We eventually came to an iteration point where where things were solid and stable, but for the first few years of prototypes, the flippers were a a major risk. So, um, for 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 the people I've interviewed on the podcast that have brought something to market, one of the things we talk about is the you know de- design for manufacturing, design design for 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 repair, service, etc. Um, I will say having had to do some work on the P three because like in everything in pinball, things things break, things need to get fixed. Um, and your folks have been absolutely helpful in doing that, by the way, both TJ and and Nick, um, as well as your 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 direct help in in a few cases. Um, what I will say is like the a built like it is it is most definitely now today built for serviceability it is a very easy machine to service um it's you know the couple things you have to learn that are different than a more traditional machine but that's that that that's normal were you at this point as you were innovating over these five years also designing for manufacturability um or was that something that happened after you had your let's call your 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 go-to-market working prototype no, it was it was always part of the consideration. We knew, I mean, it was 20, obviously we founded with money in 2012 expecting to build a product. So the reason TJ started, the reason we brought him on board was to help us take these concepts and these hand-built prototypes and turn them into a manufacturable product. Mind you, we didn't 100% understand the complexities of designing mechanical items for a pinball machine that would survive the types of things pinball need machines need to survive but um iteratively we improve the quality but we always intended to make it 
manufacturable and reliable for manufacturing. The serviceability was kind of a byproduct of the modularity. Um, the system itself, because it's got modular play fields and because we wanted to be able to change the, the flipper interface, we wanted to be able to pull out one set of flippers and put in a completely different set of flippers, which we haven't done yet. We don't do. Uh, but we made all those slide in and out. We started the whole design with the extruded aluminum side rails kind of like an oven rack, the sides of an oven rack. So we can slide in the flippers, we can slide in the display, we can slide in the, the features underneath. Um, that all kind of came out of our desire to want to change up the functionality over time. Turns out that's very serviceable. Yeah, it, it, it's it's extremely serviceable. Um, I, I will say on, on my other machines that I have, when I've got to make a fix to lift up the play field and like work underneath the machine with the play field on with the potential of it coming down on my head, like it's a scary thing here. You know, I pull the module off, put it on the, uh, on the, on a, the little portable table I have, and I can just work on it there. Um, I will also say as, as an aside, um, a number of the documents that you folks have online and that have been passed to me, um, it looks like TJ had actually made some of them as manufacturing and servicing, um, yeah. documents. So it, it, it definitely is helpful. Um, you know, I, I looked on the Discord um, this morning. Um, it, as far as I can tell, there are seven modules and 15 downloadable add-on games, which are a total of 22 games. Um, talk, talk to me about, you know, getting that first module out the door um, and then, you know, get, getting commercial shipments out and then building up to 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 the seven modules, you know, uh, including third party, or including third party modules as well as um, licensed modules. Yeah, so first of all, how cool is it? There's 20 plus games for this thing that we built. 20 plus experiences that people can have out of this single machine that they can buy. That's it's like well, the entire vision realized. Um, and and we, and and some of the, those and all of those experiences are physical and digital experiences, which is a really magical thing. If people have not played Michael Ocean's most recent game, they absolutely have done have to. It's D Dungeon Door Defender. It it truly should to me at least it 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 put goosebumps on my back when i played it because oh, it really showed the power of, of physical digital anyways go and, and that's a 200 dollars add-on every single game for the system and i know I'm, i just put on the marketing hat for a second <laughs> the sales hat you can buy weird owls museum of natural Arities, 3500 dollars. it's not ten thousand dollars you already have the system it's it's just a a a, a small add-on expense for for whole new experiences but we started with we started with the plan to launch Cannon Lagoon, Lexi Lightspeed, and Cosmic Heart Racing together, um, all with Barnyard and Rocks as two minigames at the same time. Um, and again, we started pre-selling 2013. We didn't ship until 2017. So around the 2016 timeframe, we're like, oh, crap, we can't really do all these at the same time. It's going to take us forever. So then we serialized and we came out with Lexi Lightspeed first, which, oh, by the way, is a Dennis Nordman design. He he loved the machine. It, at the expo when he saw it and he's we, we got him to help uh, so we launched with launched with lexi lightspeed we i think we came out with rocks and barnyard and cannon lagoon shortly thereafter and then it wasn't but another year or two later when we came out with cosmic heart racing but the release of cosmic heart racing was a second full physical really cool pinball experience on the exact same platform that people at the time could buy it for it might have been twenty one hundred dollars or twenty five hundred dollars. I don't. I don't remember. But it was this incremental cost to add an entirely different game. Um, we always had the idea to do a third party development kit. I don't actually know when we first started releasing that kit. When we first released that kit, um, but we came out with 
Well, I guess it would be Grand Slam Rally was the first third-party game developed. It was developed for the Cannon Lagoon Playfield. It must have been 2017, 2018 when that came out. So clearly we had the dev kit out right around then. Um, friend of the company, Jimmy Lippo from 86 Pixels, wrote Grand Slam Rally. Uh, he helps us do a whole lot of things. But he also took a took an interest in the system itself and thought it'd be cool to write a game. Um, let's see. 2017, 2018, that came out. We built, was it Heist after that? I think so. Heist was 2020, right when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it took us two years after Cosmic Heart Racing to develop our next full game kit, which was Heist. We had Steven come on as the creative director. He drove into, at the time we were down south in a manufacturing facility in South Austin. We'd talk about Heist, the concepts, the rules. And we took two years. We didn't have a schedule. Right, we're not like we need this out by X date. It was when this thing is ready, when it's polished, when it's ready to go, and it came out March 2020, right before COVID hit, and that kind of shut us down. Um, the good the good news is people were still buying pinball games during COVID. Right. The bad news is um, we didn't really have the opportunity to get into the manufacturing facility and build these games and ship them. So it, it was kind of a tough time. But regardless, throughout the early 2020s, um. It was a big growth period for us because we were coming out with Heist and other people were starting to develop mini games. Um, we developed a couple more mini games of our own. We started adding features like Bluetooth support for headphones and things. Um, we came out with the profile system where we started documenting the profile system. Lots of new features that no pinball machine had ever really supported before. And then we came out after that with our first license title, which was Weird Al. And then, um, I, you know, in terms of innovation, you've also got the head-to-head -head play with Cosmic Heart Racing. Yes. Um, you know, a, a, although NBA uh, uh, Fast Break did have it for a serial connection between two machines, the fact that you can play this over the internet is 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 super awesome. Um, yeah, and you still can. Any anyone who got Cosmic Heart Racing can right now just load up a game, start host a game, or, or join one that's hosted by someone. That, I mean, our community is small enough now where usually you got to get a few friends together and coordinate and get online and do it. But yeah, yeah you, you can do that today. And, and there's a there's a Discord specifically, a Discord channel specifically for Cosmic Heart Racing matchmaking, which which works just great. Um, so the you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you got the the Weird Al license and you know what what that did for for the growth of Multimorphic? Yeah, um, we we every everyone knows the power of a license in the pinball market, and we were coming out with games so far that it had been licensed, and the reason they were unlicensed is because. We didn't have any money. Uh, we had a bunch of people. Oh, by the way, I didn't say, but a lot of our developers, um, in fact, all of our developers were people who saw what we were doing early on and reached out and said, this is super cool. I want to help. Steven Silver reached out. Uh, BJ, um, BJ Wilson from New Zealand, he said, this is super cool. I had similar ideas. I want to do something. I want to help. And he he's written a lot of our framework software. He wrote the first version of Rocks. Um Rory Cernuda, we met at Pacific Pinball Expo, and he was a, he was he. I think he just graduated his his game design school and wanted to help. So anyway, all these people reached out and wanted to help. We had this team of people who weren't making any money with us. I wasn't making any money. I was still working for free. I'm still basically working for free. I'm trying to make this thing successful. Um, we all kind of shared the risk, and we will all eventually, hopefully, share some kind of reward. But all of us put this thing together. We came out with Heist. And realized 
I mean, it sold okay. It sold okay for us for a new machine with a growing community of people that thought it was cool. It didn't sell like other licensed titles were selling in the industry. And we knew we were putting so much time and effort and our savings into this company that we needed to do something bigger. Um, so Stephen and I, well, the whole team kind of talks about, always throws out idea for licenses and talks through them. But I don't know if it was Stephen or, or, or me who said, hey, what about Weird Al? And we both thought it'd be super cool and um, reached out to his agent who sent us to his manager and his manager was super friendly and helpful. And we decided to do it. That was just kind of pretty organic. Um, we reached out to him. He thought it'd be cool. We had some back and forth about concepts and early on items, but we came up with the museum concept. We picked the songs. He didn't veto. He vetoed one. Well, he didn't veto one. He said there was one song on our early list that he'd rather us pick something else. But if we really wanted to, he'd let us do it. Um, and it just kind of super nice guy, super easy to deal with, super helpful. The problem with that one was was the music licensing. And the music licensing for that game um, required us to talk to a lot of different publishers because we... Yes, yes, he didn't technically have to get permission to make his music, but we right. absolutely had to get permission to make a game with the music that was based on many other artists' work. So it, it was it was a learning process for us, but the game is amazing. The, the music's amazing. Scott Denisi helped with the audio package. Michael Ocean, who's a Weird Al super fan, I reached yep. out to him early on and said, hey, we have a Weird Al license. He's like, oh, my God, I'm in. I'm in. So, so very special. So, Weird Al, like m many of your of your customers, was the reason that I ended up buying buying the P3. It had been on my radar for a while, and nice. like I'm a huge Weird Al fan. That that tipped the the scales for me. But I will say, going back, um, I got the modules basically in reverse of the way that you guys uh, uh, designed and implemented them. And so I got Weird Al first, and then Heist showed up later. Um, I personally actually like Heist a little bit better than than Weird Al, just because of the character development in it. Um, I, I and, and I like the fan layout of it. It's it just it just resonates with me. Um, but then going back, like I'm a huge Dennis Norman fan, and the fact that Lexi is designed by Dennis Norman, like I, you know, I I will rotate those three games pretty pretty regularly. Um, and it's 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 awesome that you got that license. Uh, and and I will, you know, like like I said, the character development in both Lexi and Heist, for that matter, are really 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 good. Um, the so uh, you know, you've you know, you've built out the company over over just over a decade. Um, you know, you've you've talked about some some highs and you know. Um, what are what are some lows? What are some things that you know you would take as um, as as lessons learned? And if you if you have lessons for other people who want to go down the the maker to market journey or even the custom journey, what are what are some lessons you would you would give them? Oh geez, um, the obvious one is what I said earlier. The to, to to build a company like this, you either better commit a decade of your life to it with no pay and. Um, no free time, because this literally still is a 16-hour-a-day job for me, um, almost as much for my wife, Sarah, who helps on the on the business side of things. Um, $2 million in 2012 would have been a good start. <laughs> to today, maybe $5 million? I don't know. If you're going to go out and get investment to build a pinball company, I wouldn't do it for probably $2 million anymore. It would take a lot more. The amount of, the amount of money you'll spend in prototyping and the licensing and building out a factory and doing all this stuff is significant. And if you don't have money, you're doing it with your time and effort. And hopefully you've got friends who are willing to help you because 
it's just too much for for one or two people um so there's the business side of things what what the challenges to build up a business with no resources is 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 hard for me to describe how difficult that is sure um, the the obvious second one is pinball machines are extremely complicated things mm-hmm. um 2500 unique parts 4000 total parts in a machine or whatever and if one part if one single screw falls out or isn't put in or whatever, then the feature that that's holding together doesn't work. And the experience for a customer is ruined, right? You as a new customer, you get a brand new machine. If it's missing one screw and whatever actuator doesn't move, it's like, I I can't play this game. This is terrible. I hate this experience. So the the challenge to create a a high quality product that works for customers when they receive it is enormous. And you read all these threads about, man, I got a machine from whatever manufacturer and it's terrible. They have terrible QC because I got it and I don't know, the coil stop broke or um, something was wired incorrectly. And, and I relate that back to our own experiences. We've got customers who receive their machines and if something doesn't work right, the P3 is new. It's different. It does things differently. So they can't even lean on their own experience with traditional pinball machines and say, oh, I can, no worries. I have 10 other machines. I can just fix this. Usually it's like, oh my God, this is a black box to me. Let me call up Multimorphic Support and tell them I, I can't play the game that I bought. So um, customer experiences related to quality are incredibly challenging and doing that on top of a machine with no money made it extra challenging. Um, We're at the point now where we understand how to build a quality machine, but we have people working for us and people are humans and humans make mistakes and things happen. And all you can do is deal with those and move forward and and try to make sure they don't happen again. Yeah. it, I, I I hear you. Your your analogy earlier on it being you know like designing a car, I think is is spot on. Um, you know, it's I that that many moving parts, they all have to work together. If one one doesn't work, the whole thing doesn't work, and the experience is 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 you know goes down the gutter. And the you know the the fact that you said what you said, which is you know the customer experience is is job one, and that's that 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 you know that that's your top job is job one. I, I I've lived that. Um, we, you know, for the things that work great straight out of the box, that was awesome. For the things that you know, I had I had to reach out to to your folks. You guys have been all, nothing but awesome in in getting back to me. I feel like you were standing right there beside me, and you and Nick and TJ, like everybody who 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 has helped, and 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 the people on the forums as well. Um, Ian, who's who's offered his his free time to 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 help or Gamma Code, I should say. Um. The 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 other thing is, you know, you you talked about all this 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 band of of folks that you brought together, um, and you know, a lot of them have released their own games on, or experiences on on the P3, and I think this goes back to one of the things you said very early on in the interview, which was, you know, when you realized that you were working for, so I'm paraphrasing here, when you were working for someone else and how they weren't necessarily taking care of you and didn't care how much time you were spending. Um, I can see that you've changed, you've you've brought a different culture to the way that the multimorphic, you know, core builds out games, builds out experiences, works together. And that's that that's pretty awesome as well. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing. It's it's tough. And it's still we're still an immature company in the grand scheme of things. We still need to come out with bigger titles and um build the community bigger and put out more educational material and help people do these things. So I still see us very much in the risk part of the risk reward equation. So the people that are helping us are still helping us 
with the hopes that one day this is going to be largely successful. And, and I am as well. We're still putting in all these hours because we think we could make this thing um, what we originally thought, which is a machine, a system that has a place in this community for the long haul. Yeah, and 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 you know, with with final resistance now coming out, you guys focusing on as as has been said in, in a few places on lo- looking at what you can do to double down even more so on some quality things, just uh, delaying as as was in your open in in your letter, um, de- delaying the release of a couple couple modules to to go look at some some of those fundamentals and what you can do even better is awesome. Like I'm rooting for you. I know there's many other people who are rooting for you. Um, I. You know, I, I I know that there's been 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 ups and downs. Let's let's take the ups and and learn from the downs. And you know, uh, I I want to see you be successful. Um, like I said, you've got you've got a customer who's super happy. Um, and everybody that I bring over on, and show the machine, it's like it's it's the machine they want to gravitate to compared to everything else that I have in my lineup. I love um, hearing that. Yeah. yeah. So um, the the only thing that even can can hold water is my virtual pinball. But that's like no, don't it, say it's. That. Yeah. Well, no, but that the 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 ability to the, the reason is because you can switch out titles very very easily. But it, the one thing they say is it's not a mechanical pinball machine, and when they see the P three, that's when the magic light goes off. Um, Jerry, listen, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, I appreciate you know how how you know honest and 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 raw and and you know uh, 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 how how you walked through the journey, um, how you spent the time on the journey. Thank you very much for taking the time for me and the listeners. You bet. I I appreciate what you do for the community. I love hearing everyone's story who's been on your podcast. It, it's great from the from the homebrew perspective to see all these people getting involved, and everyone's got a story. Everyone started somewhere. Everyone's doing homebrew pinball. All pinball is very difficult, and everyone who's successful at it is a successful one because they're a hardworking individual, and two because a lot of people are helping them. Yeah, I, I think it's very well said. Well, listen, thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening. And I can't wait to see what you make. 